everyone. Today I'm joined by Neil Emmanuel and Dr. Eleanor Yenega, and we're going to be talking about their book, um, The Middle Ages, A Graphic History. This is a new book that's out now. Absolutely fantastic. Um, that incorporates uh, text about the Middle Ages, but also some absolutely fantastic illustrations uh, that uh, Neil has done. Um, but Thank first, you. Eleanor, could we maybe talk about um, the Middle Ages? What is the Middle Ages? This is a great question and one that I always like to be asked because some people tend to think that the Middle Ages just means before Victorians, but it doesn't. Um, the term Middle Ages kind of gives you a hint at what we mean by it. And we mean it's in the middle of the ancient period, which is most of history, and the modern period. And so we just, for the sake of it, say that the ancient period ends with the fall of Western Rome in 476, uh, when the last Western Roman Emperor Romulus Augustulus is deposed. So there you go. If it's 477, you are talking about the medieval period. Uh, and then what we mean by the end of the medieval period really varies from place to place and person to person. But as a general rule of thumb, if you are saying the year 15, you're talking about the early modern period. So 16th century onward, you are pretty fair to say that you're now early modern instead of medieval. So medieval is basically everything between those two points. So we're basically looking at about a thousand years worth of history, aren't we? From 476, 477 AD onwards, just after the Romans, all the way through Norman conquest, all the rest of it, all the way through up until about the 1500s. Yep, that's absolutely right. And is the medieval period the same as the Middle Ages? Yes, it is. And so a lot of people get confused by that, but the terms are completely interchangeable. So say you're one of those people who has trouble spelling medieval. Don't worry about it. You don't have to. You can just say Middle Ages. Everyone will know what you're talking about and you'll be exactly right. Fantastic. And what about also the some other phrases that I think quite often confuse people because there's so many different phrases are used for the same kind of time. Dark Ages. Let's talk about the Dark Ages. What are the Dark Ages? Yeah, so the Dark Ages, we have to be really particular with that because when historians use the term Dark Ages, all we mean by that is the early medieval period. So, you know, again, 476 up to, and I suppose here you could say a lot of the time a good one is Charlemagne. So around about the year 800 when we get the Carolingian Renaissance and we've got a lot more texts. I'm bringing texts up because the thing about the term dark ages is a lot of people tend to think that the dark ages is a term that we use to mean bad or like a really difficult time where terrible things were happening, but that's not what we mean. Uh, we mean dark as an occluded. And by occluded, I mean, it's difficult to see what was going on because we don't have a lot of texts that survived. So it's just a period of time when and we don't have a whole lot of people writing down what it is that they were experiencing. And that's completely understandable because it's a really, really long time ago. You know, it's more than a millennium ago. And, you know, if you think about, for example, I always say it's like moving house. Like when you move house, you throw out all your old electricity bills. You throw out books that you aren't reading. You throw out all the papers that you don't need. You know, medieval people did that too. So it's only the biggest, brightest, most special text that ever survived that long. And you can't expect everyone to just be keeping every single shopping list that they had from the time. So it doesn't mean bad. It just means that we're not exactly sure what's going on. And because of that confusion, we sort of stopped using the term dark ages. So from a historian point of view, now we tend to say early middle ages instead, just to kind of keep people on board with us and so that they know what we mean. So the, the Dark Ages is the same as 
the early medieval period or the early Middle Ages. In archaeology, sometimes we also call that time post-Roman, the post-Roman period. Um, but really, we're talking about that very late 400s going into the 500s AD and then for the next two, three hundred years. And then we come to the High Middle Ages. That's right. And the High Middle Ages is a really, really uh, interesting time. And actually, it's a point of time when a lot of us know a bit more. So the High Middle Ages is when a lot of the hits that you will know happen. So here in England, the Norman Conquest, um, the Crusades all happen during the High Middle Period, although some of them are also happening in the late medieval period. It's fine. Uh, the first ones are in, are in the, the high middle ages, uh, but you also have the rise of universities. Um, it's the beginning of medieval scholasticism. So we have a lot more thinkers who are writing a lot of philosophy. And it's when we really sort of cement what it means to be a medieval person. So you've got the rise of the church at this point in time and all the structures that we really tend to think about in terms of medieval Europe are established at this time. So when we say high medieval Europe, what we mean by that it's like oh it's really got going at this point and then i guess we move on in time to the late medieval period that's right and now this is my time to shine because i'm a late medievalist more specifically uh, and the late medieval period is really interesting because this is kind of when things start to go wrong so you have a number of really terrible things kind of happen in the late medieval period so in the 14th century in particular say from 1317 you've got the great famine that happens after that in 1335 you've got the black death is introduced to europe uh, you have the great schism in the church which is when there was one pope in avignon and one pope in rome and sometimes a pope in Pisa. So there's all kinds of really interesting big shifts that happen in the late medieval period. Oh, and the Hundred Years' War, forgot about that one. <laughs> um, and we'll come to these uh, in more detail in, in a bit because they're um, all mentioned in uh, the book that we're going to talk about. Um, but for the late medieval period, it's 1300s onwards. Yeah, roughly. Until, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say so. Up until about 1500s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a really good way of putting it. You know, it's one of these things where, you know, historians will argue about this all day long, but it's just because we're boring and insufferable. So that's, you know, a good rule of thumb is as good as anything else. So the medieval period basically breaks down into three periods. The early medieval period or the Dark Ages or the early Anglo-Saxon period or the post-Roman period. That's all the same. Mm. Then we've got the high Middle Ages or the... Um, the mid medieval period and then we've got the late medieval period or the late middle ages yeah we had there to come up go. with high because mid medieval period just sounds too awkward you know so. yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you managed to do that so a thousand years of history and you managed to get that into a book this size that's pretty amazing actually it took some doing. I, I will. I'll be honest with you there. Um, what I ended up doing was um, I modeled it off of first year university courses that I teach. Um, so my idea was I wanted people who had no idea about medieval history to be able to pick this up, and by the end of it, they'll have like a really solid basis of what the major structures of the medieval period are. What are the themes? What are the big things that, that change over time? But it had to be something where you could also pick it up, and you'd want to do that yeah. you know because it can be kind of daunting we don't all know about the medieval period we're not all taught about it in school because it's really complex and messy so you can't really sit an eight-year-old down and say oh and by the way things are really different in Italy than they are to in Bohemia than they are to England so you know 
pay attention to that. But when we're adults and we can do this for fun, we can pick up a fun and easy book like this, learn mm-hmm. a bit more, and we can be more comfortable with the fact that it's a little bit messy. So it's a really nice opportunity to talk to adults who want to learn a bit more, but who don't really feel the need to be very stuffy about it. I think the fantastic thing is, as well as the text, is that there are some amazing illustrations as well, um, and which, Neil, um, you were in charge of. That was your job, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, how did you come about to be involved in doing this book? Um, yeah, so it was really kind of um, happenstance and a bit of like who I've been working with and the kind of works that I do. So finishing time team, working with directors who um, work on historical shows asking me to do uh, historical artwork and graphics and I would like to generate my own artwork if possible um, which because that's what I'm interested in really and um, so getting a body of work together which included woodcut and um, manuscripts uh, illuminations that kind of style of thing and also in parallel knowing people in the comics uh, world in 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 London and uh, the UK so a good friend Wallace Eats who manages Ladies Do Comics she knew someone who was looking for a uh, uh, um, you know a medieval uh, cartoon comic illustrator and so I guess I could fit that bill and and uh, yeah I eventually got into contact with Icon Books and we ended up having a nice meeting met Eleanor met Kira who's our really lovely editor um, yeah and and that kind of we went from there didn't we Eleanor? Yeah, it was very, for me, um, and if you build it, they will come sort of moment because I never even questioned hilariously in retrospect that I'd be able to find someone who would draw this for me. I just started, you know, I just went off and started writing it. So by the time I luckily found Neil, I was about halfway through. uh, And, you know, that was a very, very good and nice thing for me because he was really able to understand what it was that I was trying to put out there. And the entire process ended up being just an absolute joy. And your your writing style as well is very digestible, so it really complements the nature of the book. Um, yeah, 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 for sure. I'll take uh, this. I, I'll, I'll hang out for all these compliments all day long. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. I think it made it like uh, also a very rich collaboration. You know, the way that we were able to kind of um, um, work together, and I, I would find lots of the uh, like, like, like you're you're talking about all these different topics that everyone's kind of hearing you talk about. This is kind of what it was like for me, uh, it, you know, illustrating the book. I was le- I was learning on the job, <laughs> you know. Neil, do you have a favourite uh, illustration that you did? Yeah, so I've got different favourites, I guess, for different reasons. So, like, I'm 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 a big fan of the others page. Um, where we're sort of talking about um, minority groups in the past and then we've got minority groups today and we're kind of like doing a little bit of a, a comparison. Um, so I, I kind of like that topically because I think that's kind of important. Uh, I, I, we, we have a nice section on others, uh, lots of like uh, prostitution and um, you know, all sorts of different kind of like homosexuality. And these are like really important topics today, I think. And learning about them in the past informs, you know, how we think about them now. Um there's also a nice page um, to do with um, Peter Abelard. Uh, so where I got to write a, uh, I, again, like this kind of, East, I got to put a little Easter egg there and I got to do a little bit of poetry as well. So I embedded that in there. And it's a poem about 
Peter Abelard's Peter. So if anyone knows what that is, uh, yeah. or go 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 read the book. You read. Yeah, you're going to have to read the book to find out more about why we've brought this up. Yeah, yeah. can we just briefly mention that who is Peter Abelard? Uh, Peter Abelard was a high medieval philosopher and theologian. He was incredibly important and he was one of the big names that was first attached to the University of Paris when it was set up. Um, and he basically gets himself in a bit of trouble with the church and more particular St. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, who is uh, like a church favorite. Um, essentially, he's such a jerk that uh, a bunch of his teachings get banned because he's just completely awful to other people. He's a really, really fascinating guy um, because he's absolutely brilliant, but um, a terrible person to be around. <laughs> and that gets him in trouble. So it's, it, it's interesting, the things that can get you into trouble or that you can get away with in the medieval period i mean didn't he just go around into people's classrooms shouting at other teachers yeah absolutely so it, it's interesting because the medieval idea of a university is totally different to our own and it's really focused on a debate and specifically debate about philosophy and theology and so he would sort of be like come on class we're going over to my rival's classroom and he would walk in and start talking about how they were a complete idiot and how they were wrong about this and it was like walking around with like a little gang of undergrads uh, who would just sort of clap for you um, so yeah, university not exactly the same. <laughs> I can't imagine doing how well that would go down if I did that to any of my colleagues. Um, and I don't think my students would really come along with it either, but there, at least I hope they would. It was definitely an, an interesting character. And, and I think, yeah, your illustration, uh, Neil, your, your kind of cartoons there are fantastic of that. There's so many different sections. Obviously, you're covering a thousand years of, of history. Um, and I'm just wondering, actually, I mean, there's a fantastic section on the Black Death. Now, I know that, Eleanor, this is one of your um, favourite subjects. And maybe yes. we could just talk a little bit about what the Black Death is, was it called the Black Death then? What kind of time frame are we talking about? Um, and yeah, maybe a little bit more about that. Yeah, so the Black Death, it can be confusing because it is an outbreak of bubonic plague and it's the largest outbreak of bubonic plague that had ever happened in Europe, but it's not the first and it, it's certainly not the last. So we know, for example, it was around um, in the Justinian plague in Byzantium, stuff like that. But basically the germ Yersinia pestis, which is what causes bubonic plague, came off of um, some fleas that were on marmots out in kind of like the Tajikistan, Kazakhstan uh, part of the steppes when lots of caravans start going through the Silk Road because it's a really peaceful uh, period of time. So people start trying to make money. Uh, and they, the fleas jump off the marmots onto the horses, the camels, the what have you, and onto people. Um, it's a highly, highly communicable bacteria. So you kind of get it from fleas in the first instance, but if you're around anybody else, you get it as well. It makes its way over to Europe by 1335, and it just basically decimates everything. It comes off of the Crimean Peninsula into Constantinople and then into the Italian city-states. And from there, because the Italian city-states are such uh, prodigious traders, it gets basically everywhere in Europe. Long and short of it, by the time the Black Death is done, 25% of the world's population are dead. Um, and it didn't happen in the Americas and it didn't happen in Australia. So that kind of tells you, you know, it's only half the continents that are populated that got this and it was 25%. So that means in places like really big, important cities like Florence, they lose 60% of the population. But when we're specifically talking about the Black Death, we mean that iteration of the plague. 
So the plague becomes endemic in Europe and Asia and Africa as well, and it will re happen every few years. So for example, here in London, we have a really bad outbreak of plague in 1666. Um, and But that's a 17th century plague. It's the same virus, but it's not the Black Death. So it's kind of like champagne. If it's it's champagne, if it's the Black Death, everything else, that's just sparkling death. Okay. So it, it's not the same thing. We mean one specific thing when we say it. And, and uh, it was called the Black Death, not at the time, but later, really, because it was just so horrible. Exactly. So they called it the pestilence and they would refer to it over and over again as the pestilence um, and they would describe it. So, you know, we've got firsthand accounts, uh, for example, Giovanni Boccaccio in the Decameron has a really good um, explanation of what all of the symptoms are and how it breaks out. And they just say pestilence over and over again. We say Black Death because of how extraordinarily awful it was. Um, and it's funny because I just uh, spent some time lecturing you about how the Dark Ages doesn't mean bad, but in this case, Black does mean bad. So, you know, uh, and funnily enough, Black Death and the Dark Ages, absolutely nothing to do with each other. Mm. You know, uh, about, yeah. about 900 years away from each other. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting um, now, I think, given that, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, it is awful. Many people, well, in fact, everyone's been affected by mm. uh, COVID in some way. Um, and But actually looking back at the Black Death, that time um, still must have been even worse than what we're going through now. You know, it's interesting because it was so bad that it's still almost affecting us now. Um, it was funny when COVID started breaking out, my all the my media requests went through the roof and everybody wanted to talk about the Black Death because when we think about pandemics, just it's sort of hardwired into our, our psyche at this point in time that what you mean is the Black Death because that's how awful it was. And I mean, imagine you lived in Florence and 60% of every single person you knew died. Mm. Um and, you know, here in England, we lose entire villages that just don't have a population to sustain them and they're rewilded. We have rewilding across Europe where there just aren't enough people to keep farms going. So it becomes wilderness again. I think it's in Scandinavia. The population doesn't recover to pre-plague levels until about the 1700s. So this is a really substantial loss of life. And it's almost too large and terrible for us to really get our heads around because we've never encountered anything that is anywhere near this. I mean, obviously COVID is horrible. It's changed all of our lives and way, way, way too many people have died, but it is nowhere near the levels of what we're talking about in terms of the Black Death. Yeah. Um, and I think, um, yeah, it's really uh, interesting that you cover that actually in one of, one of your sections. Um, but um, just looking at the 1300s in general, um, I mean, that was a crazy century. So not only have you got the Black Death going on, um, previous to that, there's a famine. Yeah, the Great Famine. So it's funny because we, it's the Black Death and the Great Famine. The Great Famine makes it sound like it was good and it wasn't. Um, but we have the Great the Great Famine comes along and essentially we have a real change in weather in Europe. Previous to this, uh, Europe was uh, experiencing what we call the medieval warm period. So temperatures were just a bit warmer. It, it, eh, a little bit less warm than now, but around about there. Um, so it was really great for agriculture. In about 1317, this starts going away and we enter what's called the Little Ice Age, which actually reigns for the majority of uh, the early modern period as well. 
And in 1317 and the following years, we have absolutely terrible summers and they're very cold and it absolutely pours it down with rain. So basically everywhere had a British summer <laughs> across Europe for two years in a row. Um, and crops completely collapsed as a result of this. And in the medieval period, it's not the same as now. You can't just say, okay, well, that's fine. We will get rice in from Australia instead, or we can get potatoes in from South America. I mean, not the least because we didn't even have potatoes yet, but um, it, it's one of these things where there was nowhere else to go. You had to get food in your own backyard. And when you couldn't do that, there was a huge famine as a result. And we have a huge loss of life there as well. So it's a really terrible thing when you think about it, because it was almost like we were just about restabilizing here in Europe after the Great Famine hits, and then you've got the Black Death. So imagine living through the Great Famine in your 20s, and then you're in your 40s, and the Black Death comes along. It's absolutely devastating as a series of events. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a crazy century. And on, on top of that, you mentioned earlier, you've also got the Hundred Years' War, which people can learn about in the book, uh, and the Great Schism, which is the, 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 the period where you end up with three popes, not one, not two, but three popes and all sorts going on. So again, this is all really well explained in the book. And, and I just think it's fantastic because each one of these subjects, these individual subjects on their own, you could talk for hours about You could write an entire book or thesis on, couldn't you? Oh, yes. Oh, God. It's it's one of the things where it's very funny when you're trying to get through a thousand years of history and then you hit the 14th century and it's, oh, how do I address all of these things where on their own, if you put any one of those things in a separate century, that would be the defining thing of the century, right? The Great Famine would be the defining feature of the 12th century if you popped it there, you know, but that's not when it happened. They all just happened to happen at exactly the same time. So it's a, it's a sort of force of a century if what you're really into is tragedy. <laughs> but as you were saying, it's actually, uh, from your perspective as a social historian, it's interesting. Um, it, do you, would exactly. you like to explain why? Yeah, so for me, the reason why the 14th century is interesting is because when you get a group of people and you put them in bad circumstances, that's when you find out who they really are right? Everyone's on their best behavior when everything's good. They don't have to worry. They don't have to, you know, and they can just kind of get on with life. When things are really, really bad, that's when you find out who people are. You know, it's it's the plot to any zombie movie, right? That's how you, you get to true natures very quickly. And so as a result of the Black Death and everybody dying, there's a lot of people who quite understandably think that this might be the end of the world, which you can't really fault them for. And the ways that people react to that are really different. Some people become like really pious, really aesthetic. They say, you know, I'm putting myself on a diet and I'm wearing a hair shirt. Um, people go even further than that. You have groups like the flagellants who go from town to town, stripping themselves naked to the waist and beating themselves with ropes to try to appease God because they think that God sent this as punishment. And then you've got people who go in the exactly the opposite direction and they say, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of what I call, it's like YOLO culture where it's like, well, if I'm going to die tomorrow, I'm having a party now. And they are all making out with each other in the streets, drinking wine and having a great time because that if they're going to go out, they're going to go out partying. So it's really interesting because 
we can tend to think about the Middle Ages and people in the Middle Ages as a complete monolith and say, well, this is, you know, how people are. We say they're very religious. They're very uptight. They don't know how to have fun. And that's not true at all. Really religious people, certainly, but they still live their lives however it is they're going to live their lives. And you can still pick out a lot about people's personalities and the way that the world works for them within structures like a highly religious society. That's really interesting. And people need to to read the book to find out more about it. I'm just wondering, Neil, actually, can yes. we talk a little bit more about your illustrations? Sure. Um, because uh, what was your influence for these? They're, they're very kind of, they're very striking. They're wonderful. Um, I mean, what was your influence behind this? So I, a lot of the style really comes from, well, medieval manuscripts. I think actually like uh, Eleanor, I, I was like looking up illuminations, but then you said, well, Neil, use use the word manuscript and I could actually find lots of references. So manuscripts, um, illuminations and woodcuts are my main influence. And that's sort of like, the, like, like I was saying before, it's a body of work that I've already been working with. So I kind of have a, already had a, quite a good handle with it. The, the front cover is a bit more like an uh, uh, painted illumination whereas the internal works kind of like a little bit like a hybrid um woodcut so because it's very because it's a black and white book woodcutting kind of style works but having the sense some sensibilities of how they do line work with uh, manuscripts and I, I actually do a lot of research uh so I think I've mentioned this before I did an interview with Tim and I was just sort of saying about um working with uh, Victor Ambrose was quite interesting because he, he had this big library of of um in his head of costumes and looks and periods and he just um really you know had this experience whereas for me I, I kind of didn't have necessarily that I have books about costumes and I have to go for, foraging but actually like the, my best source material was just looking at different ways um people illustrated in manuscripts and um, I take certain elements and from here and there and glom them together and um yeah so it was kind of a, a, a quite a frankenstein sort of process uh, and it was important to on the whole try to make things as um as accurate i didn't want i didn't want loads of things in there that shouldn't be in for the right period which is again is quite hard to know because mm. you know manuscripts have been spread over across a thousand uh thousand years the earlier stuff looks a little bit different from the later stuff and you see a bit more detail in the later stuff so uh it's kind of just trying to get the right balance and then it, but breaking those rules when we need to in order to kind of maybe do a little bit of comedy or put in an anachronistic element in there so like we're talking about with the the peter abler there's a picture of of a uh, of, uh, of an inn or a pub that kind of thing and we called it the drunken monk because the monks are kind of being drunkenly loutish um but you know there's obviously other more modern connotations of drunken monk kind of uh kung fu you know like, so we're kind of like playing with like things like that as well to to really kind of make it relevant and yeah keep it keep it interesting and and having elements dovetail and feedback um so like you know uh, having a little kind of uh in there there is a little tony robinson-esque character in there oh what about 
Uh, it's a, 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 it's hidden. It's a, see if you can find uh-huh. it. Let's. Uh, oh, I leave it to you, I leave it to the viewers to to see if they can figure it out. But uh, it, it's subtle. It's subtle. It's not hundred percent, but it's it's, it's definitely kind of. I definitely uh, went to a few resources. To, oh, does Tony look like? Yeah. Okay. We're gonna gonna make sure. I, I capture him as complimentary as possible. Uh, but uh, yeah, so he's in there. He's in there. In fact, what what you you were just mentioning some uh, comic elements there, and I think mm. um, you know there, there there's some, and, and I mean this in a, a fantastic way. Uh, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Monty Python, actually, with some of the comic um, you, elements yeah. in there. I will take that, that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, T- Terry Gilliam. I mean, like, it, it's no surprise. Terry, Terry Gilliam's work is very kind of cut out. And a lot of the medieval manuscripts have that same kind of look. Um, even with Time Team, uh, uh, one of the directors, uh, Nick Gilliam-Smith, um, was doing a, a show. And he, he said to me, can, oh, Neil, can you do a, a Monty Python type graphic? Uh, it was, I think, something to do with Lincolnshire Cathedral, I think, or something like that. And it was these monks being sort of led away with carrots on sticks. And uh, t- but yeah, it was kind of, but it was, th- and then once they went into this kind of cathedral, then I had like, you know, God come up and, you know, uh, uh, the, the monks had wings sprouting or something like that. So like, uh, it's definitely there. It, it, there's something about medieval work that is Terry Gilliam-esque or vice versa. You know, maybe he's drawing from that. I don't know, but it sort of feels that way. So, yeah, I mean, uh, everything's kind of in profile um, a lot of the time or, or at least three quarters. You'll never have a character. Like in medieval illustrations, you, it's very rare to have a character look directly at the ca- at the camera or the viewer. Um, it's So that that's it's kind of like, uh, it's a little bit like hieroglyphics as well. A lot mm-hmm. of the characters very kind of side on or or greek kind of uh illustrations on pottery were very side on so um you you get that um yeah it's kind of interesting so you just, just got to be mindful of that because i can't it's it's hard to draw something in the wrong in the wrong way i want i i think there are only a few times where someone looks to camera um and then it's kind of i remember thinking like oh well, how would that look because just the artwork doesn't lend itself to, to that where where do i put the nose do i do i do a straight line uh for the nose or do i just do a line down here for the under the nose because th- those that's more of a modern way to kind of do noses because as you mm. kind of look to the camera you get foreshortening and you know it, yeah it's there's lots of these things going on in your head so that's why often you'll get them looking to the side um yeah it's kind of interesting lots of things to think about drawing wise and also perspectives can be kind of on uh, kind of wonky wonky perspective and sometimes uh, drawing things deliberately or not worrying that if I've gone a little bit wobbly with my drawing embracing it rather than kind of trying to get it to look anatomically correct because that's a lot of the art a lot of that artwork is kind of a, a whole range of amateur to quite professional talented to non-talented like if you look at the lateral salter kind of manuscripts uh with like their fantasy characters they're painted really lovely but the kind of proportions are really weird and uh you know it, it doesn't look like it was like a great artist but they were great in their own way but just it's just uh yeah it's quite interesting and so to try and capture that in some of the artwork <laughs> but i particularly like the one we were talking about peter abelard uh, on page 92 but the one of the monks kind of uh, flee in the pub you just mentioned the, the drunken monk pub uh, I just think that's so funny yeah 
it, it's kind of it, it does make it does make it a little bit more like like it, we could be really um serious with a lot of the, the the illustrations but sometimes you know having a bit of a license to play around with them and do make them do things that they wouldn't normally do or maybe they they kind of would in some in some uh manuscripts you you have quite graphic or phallic or you know, lots of weird stuff in it so we're able to kind of speak to that i guess Fantastic. And I noticed that you have dedicated the book to Victor Ambrose. Yes, yes. Well, I mean, like uh, a, a, a huge influence just to be uh, to, to see him work in the field, to um, see his encyclopedic kind of illustrative knowledge uh, on full display. Um, yeah, it, it was very, very inspirational. I mean, I, I would often, uh, even though I enjoy doing motion graphics, but I, I would be looking at thinking like Victor has the best job in the world. So I want to do that. Uh, and this, this book allows me to kind of do that. So it's just, it's nice to be actually be able to kind of uh, give a nod to, to Victor and kind of uh, thank him for, I mean, I never got a chance to really sort of thank him in, in this kind of way. It's almost like having, a, I guess, a, a, a grandparent um, that you, you get to a certain age and once they pass away, you can't tell them, oh, you had this kind of, you know, profound effect and thank you. So like, you know, at least, I can put this in the book and 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 everyone you know can actually just you know uh see um you know what a great artist he was and I can just mention that and, and just give a nod to him brilliant no that's fantastic to do um I really enjoyed this book I think it's fantastic in that um there's a thousand years worth of history in here <laughs> it's entertaining mm. it's not dull it explains the main points that you need to get about the middle ages or the medieval period i think it's so well written i think it's funny it's entertaining mm. uh, you can pick it up and you can dip in and out of it um and uh, just flick through every single page is illustrated it's fantastic it really is a fantastic book and Thank from you. my perspective from a kind of outreach community archaeologist kind of perspective i think it's fantastic and then it really um, gets across the message it makes it easy to read it's easy to understand it kind of takes you by the hand and uh, takes you through the middle ages all the way from the post-roman period right through up into the 1500s so thank you both neil and eleanor for joining me today really appreciate it thank you so much for having us it's such a, a pleasure to come and gush about it i guess yeah, thank you, Danny. It's it's so much fun. We, we should take you around with us wherever we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need her as a hype woman. It's gonna yeah, be yeah, it's for sure. <laughs> thank you so much. I think the book is going to do so well. So many people are going to be interested in this. So uh, good luck with it, and hopefully we can catch up uh, another time pretty soon. Thank you, Danny. Thanks, Danny. Cheers, guys. Thanks so much.